everybody, welcome back. Good to see you on this uh, BSF lecture series on Matthew. I'm Abraham Lee, the teaching leader for the San Francisco region. Today we will be looking at the remainder of Matthew chapter 11 to 12, where we will see Jesus calling his followers to repentance. He explains the true significance of the temple and the Sabbath as symbolic representations of all that he will fulfill before God on behalf of fallen humanity. So he has come to fulfill all the meaning that's behind the temple and the Sabbath as representations of who he is as an atonement for sacrifice for our sins. But before we take a closer look at that this chapter, here are some announcements for this week. Uh, MyBSF.org is back up, so please refer back to the new and improved MyBSF.org site for your materials and the lectures. Lectures will no longer be available on BibleSF.com. However, continue to use the site for checking on the latest COVID information for San Francisco. And uh, you'll also find a helpful study calendar that will show you what lesson we are on and when the holiday breaks take place. So. That will be the most up-to-date calendar for our schedule in the San Francisco uh, Peninsula region. So please refer to that. And this is what the site looks like. You will continue to have a podcast link, but the uh, link to the Bible study uh, or study materials will no longer link to videos. You will have to go to MyBSF for that. And please remember that any offering that you'd like to give for the season, you can give at bsfinternational.org, the regular headquarters site. But when you do, please refer to our uh, regional code our group code here in san francisco is one two three two that's easy one two three two and that will divert all the funds to our general san francisco region fund so whether you're a satellite member or out of a church or in-person off online group please go ahead and use this form uh this four digit number in order to be able to um have your offering rightly attributed to this region and to support the ongoing efforts of discipling people in this region. And lastly, I want to refer you to the a special uh, Christmas activity that one of our members recommended. It's Bethlehem AD in Redwood City. There will be a full live manger scene with a cast of characters numbering into close to 100, I believe, and it will only take place for three days, the 21st, 22nd, and 23rd, in the evenings at 6 to 9.30. Parking will be available at the local Kaiser Hospital parking lot, and they will shuttle people in into the neighborhood, and it is uh, expected to be a 20-minute walkthrough to fully see all that they have going on there. There's going to be a petting zoo, music, people singing, and the actors will be playing their role into the Christmas night in which Christ was born uh, in Bethlehem. So that is looking to be an exciting and very interesting activity for family and friends. All right, moving into the lecture talk for tonight, I want to start off with the big idea. The big idea for Matthew 11 and 12 is true eternal peace only comes by turning to the eternal promises in Jesus. True eternal peace only comes by turning to the eternal promises given to us through Jesus. And the focus verse for this week is Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Many years ago, the writer C.S. Lewis, who wrote the dearly loved children's book series called the Narnia Chronicles, said that after years of reading and studying many different books and cultures, 
he came to a very unsettling truth about reading the Bible as an agnostic. So he wasn't a believer at the time. So he was, here was a book, the Bible, that remained the most important book in Western civilization that has had a huge influence on how we as people organize and think about ourselves in modern times. But he had never considered that the Jesus in the Gospels could be real. After thinking about the Bible's truth claims, he came to a very difficult conclusion which he called the trilemma. And it's called the trilemma because there are three logical conclusions from uh, having studied Jesus' life. After reading the Bible, he realized that this uh, story is either talking about a Jesus who was a lunatic, who had strange delusions of being a god, or he was a liar that spoke with authority and with authoritative enough presence so that he was able to fool a lot of people into believing he was a messiah, he was the messiah, or he actually is who he says he is. He's God's Messiah. The one God had been promising to send to humanity over all humanity's existence through the prophets. So C.S. Lewis sat back and realized that the truth claims of Christ demanded a genuine response in a way that no other religion could demand. He realized the Bible brought him in direct confrontation with truth claims he could no longer deny which had a huge impact on the study of the rationality of the mind, about who we are, and about thinking about the questions of why we are alive and our humanity's purpose. What is real? What is reality? So the truth about Jesus demanded for him a response of either belief or unbelief. And that is the uh, demand that he poses on all of us. We cannot simply walk away from Jesus or ignore him like we can walk away from a movie or after finishing a nice book. In chapters 11 and 12, Jesus faces increased opposition from various sections of society, from various people who understand the significance of Jesus' claims. To each one of them, Jesus, in his mercy, continues to reveal the truth about himself and invites them to respond in belief. So we can outline the divisions into three parts. The first part is called Diverse Responses, that's chapter 11, 1 through 24. Second part is Divine Invitation, that's chapter 11, 25 to 30. And the Dismissive Responses, that's chapter 12, 1 through 50. Uh, or, I'm sorry, Dismissive Refusals, excuse me. So let's open our Bibles to chapter 11 and see our first section, Diverse Responses. In this section, we see three different responses to the truth about Jesus. Verse 1 through 15, we encounter the first response, which is questioning to believe. That's questioning to believe. So this section deals with John the Baptist. In verse 2 and 3, we see that John was in prison and he heard the deeds of the Messiah from his disciples. Jesus um, was doing all of these miracles and John wasn't actually uh, present in any of those because he was kind of uh, imprisoned and unable, out of access to all that Jesus was doing in his ministry. So John's disciples were his eyes and ears while he was in prison, and they reported about the ministry and miracles that Jesus performed and did among the people. John then sent two of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? So imagine the scene here in Galilee, Jesus is teaching and preaching, and here was a delegation sent by John, and Jesus uh, is asked, are you the Messiah? Are you the one who is to come? John wants to know your identity and also have some clarity on your ministry as the Messiah. 
before we talk about why John has this question or doubt in his mind, let's quickly look at who John was. We encounter John in Matthew 3. He comes preaching in the kingdom, preaching about the kingdom, and calling people to repentance. He was the one promised by prophets of long ago for Malachi. He was the one that leapt in his mother Elizabeth's womb when he heard about Jesus uh, being also uh, being born to marry his aunt. He even baptized Jesus in the Jordan River as Jesus began his ministry. And the gospel, you remember that when he was baptized, the father spoke and, and expressed his approval of his son. And the Holy Spirit lit on him and John saw these things. John reveals the Messiah to the nation Israel as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's John chapter 1. He witnessed John's proclamation about Jesus as his son. And John was courageous in preaching the message of the kingdom before the Pharisees and also boldly confronted King Herod's sin openly. John even jumped with joy again in his mother's womb on hearing of Mary's pregnancy with Jesus and he was the prophet coming in the spirit of Elijah that the prophet Malachi prophesied would herald the coming of the Messiah. So here we see the same John who proclaimed the kingdom of God and pointed people to Jesus as the one, the Messiah. And he was also the one now in prison filled with questions and doubts about Jesus. Let's ask what caused this anointed, bold and strong believer to question. John was imprisoned by Herod Antipas. He was in prison for over a year. Difficult circumstances often make us question God's good intention toward us. If God is all-powerful and mighty, why is he allowing me to suffer in this way? As a believer, why is he not coming to rescue me? John was, after all, human, and his circumstance perhaps made him question these things. In Matthew 4, 11 and 12, John reveals that Messiah will baptize people with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will judge the unrepentant with unquenchable fire. But what John heard from his disciples was nothing about fire and judgment. Rather, he heard about Jesus' mercy. So oftentimes we have an image of God. If he is not fitting that image, we tend to start questioning things. We question God. One of the Jewish expectations of the Messiah was that he would bring political, social, and economic deliverance. Even if those are not biblically uh, in the scriptures as indications of the Messiah. The tendency of her man is to reshape the gospel into uh, our own uh, material perspective and take away from the gospel's most important identifier that the Messiah will be releasing us, will be saving us from our sins. So perhaps John expected that as, as his forerunner that maybe perhaps someday he would have served alongside Jesus as a sidekick, as a forerunner. Perhaps he expected a strong judgment and condemnation of evil that he saw all around the empire especially among the rulers, but he was retained in prison for a long time, unable to conduct his ministry, trapped by a foolish-minded carnal ruler, and he couldn't find his joy being in this dark place where he separated from the people. So likewise, we can hold out to our persistent desires of a comfortable life in worldly terms, but it would have little in common with the faithfulness of God as he is wanting to express himself among his people. So there's something that could be off uh, cognitively and dissonant with what God is wanting to do. So we have to pray. Instead of deliverance, John was wasting away in prison. Whatever may have been the reason for his doubts, John knew where he needed to go for the answers. And this is a great example for us. He sent his disciples straight to Jesus. 
And do we go to Jesus when we have questions? And that's what we need to do as well. Verses 4 and 5, as well as Luke 7, 21, we see Jesus help John overcome his belief. He says to disciples, go back to John and tell him, the blind are receiving their sight, the lame are walking, leprosy is being cleansed, the deaf are hearing, and that the dead are raised from uh, to life. And the proclamation of the good news is going to the poor. So these are the scope of Messiah's ministry as predicted by the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. All was as the prophet had said about the Messiah, as being fulfilled in Jesus. No one else could do this work except the Messiah. So Jesus was assuring John, I am the one who is to come. John, you may not understand everything I'm doing now. Deliverance and judgment will eventually come, but not now. Trust me and trust the ministry I'm doing. And he encourages John with the spiritual truth. He says, Blessed is the, anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. John saw the Holy Spirit light upon Jesus at his baptism, and he heard the Father's voice from heaven, and he even had doubts. So, persecuted prophets struggled with doubts, and they also had burnt out when their situations became oppressive and they were attacked with fear. So if John had questions, even doubts, then we can have them too. I can have questions too. But the most important thing I need to learn from John is about going to Jesus for answers. Notice that Jesus answers not flatly yes or no, but he points to the unbelievable transformation and authority he has in exercising uh, miracles and, and showing these proofs among the people. Jesus gives the evidence and points to scripture and leaves it entirely to the conviction of John's heart to decide and to retain his faith and his belief. Even John must practice faith as a follower of Jesus. And as an important forerunner to Jesus testifying about the Messiah, his death would also be judgment against the world as they persecute and make war against God's message of deliverance. Paul reminds us that the world was unworthy of all God's witnesses who appealed to the unbelieving world to repent and turn. Remember Hebrews 11, 40 Paul explains the long line of faithful witnesses whose lives were cut short as they bore God's word to them. It says, they were tortured and refused in their release, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Still others endured mocking and floggings, and even chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went around in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, oppressed, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, and hid in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet they did not receive what was promised. God had planned something better for us, so that together with us and they, everything would be made perfect. God's plan for John's life, therefore, was not for him to grow old, get married, have children in this life, and live a comfortable lifestyle as our material minds sometimes wish we could. It's an expectation that we hold on to very strongly. These are not the things that uh, God had in mind for the forerunner. These are things that we expect and that we want in our carnality. But as God's messenger of grace, John died bearing witness of the world and the world's hostility to God. He showed by his death that they didn't want anything to do with God. And like Jesus' parable of the tenants, which we find in Matthew 21 later on, those who were supposed to be stewards of God sent to the tenants were tortured and killed. 
and then they killed the master's son that God had sent as well. Romans 8, 7 tells us, The mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind of the flesh is hostile to God, it does not submit to God's ways, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the flesh cannot please God. Even as John is experiencing fear and doubt here, Jesus says there's, there's no one born greater than John the baptizer. He was totally devoted to calling and preparing the way for the Lord in hostile territory. Like John, we may not know everything about what is to come. And humanly speaking, we often have very, very limited and short-term vision of the things that God is doing. That is why we are called to have faith. We all have a greater revelation today, however, than John ever had. The church does. What great privilege Jesus has given us the church, not only to be living into his kingdom with more fuller revelation of what he's doing, but he also invites people to the kingdom of God with a more complete revelation through the Bible that's readily available to us. And we know Jesus is the complete atonement for our sins when he died on the cross. I hope that we all are as bold and courageous as John, although we have far more than he ever did so that we can all call and invite other people to believe in Jesus. In verses 16 and 19, we see the second response to the truth about Jesus. Those who criticize his ministry of faith. Those who criticize his ministry. So Jesus, after commending John, turns his attention to the people who are critical about Jesus and John. Jesus is criticized for eating with sinners, and John is criticized for showing self-restraint and his singular focus. And then he was called, because of his lifestyle this way, demon-possessed. It's funny, whether you live like Jesus or live like John, people think you're either satanic or demon-possessed for living a righteous life, because they stand in your way. Jesus and John stands in the way of everything that you thought about your own self-righteousness. There are those who cast dispersions and denigrate and verbally abuse God's people with hardly a careful consideration and thought about who God is and what he may be doing. Jesus likens the world to music, musical child peddlers in the marketplace back then, who insist on li listeners to dance to their little senseless music. These critics cast senseless slander on the workers of God. Very flippantly, there are many senseless sideshows that will ridicule and insult and smear God's ministries as easily as they profane God's name like they do today. They reject God's plan of salvation, ridicule God's message, and then blame God for all the wrongs in the world. They create their own religious principles, declaring God cannot possibly send people to hell, so they reject God's justice. Basically, what they want is God to march in and step in to the beat of their own drum. They refuse to walk along God's ways. When God does not fill their bill, they become critical of God and respond in unbelief making up their own religious principles. Believers must not be discouraged by the flippant, easily profane ways in which the sacred and good things of God has been passed down to us. He is sovereign. I am not. God's ways are far greater than mine, and he will work through even the lies with his powerful truth. May his tune, may God's tune alone be the melody in my life that becomes a symphony, declaring the beauties and truth of God's redemption for lost mankind. I just need to be faithful to what God has held out for me to be accountable to. Verses 20 to 24, we see a third response to the truth about Jesus. That is, a refusal to believe. A refusal to believe. With all the things in which Jesus did in the towns of Galilee, 
they still refused to believe it. They ignored it. They ignored the impossible things that to us would have been just earth-shattering. Jesus was shocking people with the surprising miracles that he was, he was doing as a sign to his identity. So when he condemned them, they all knew what kinds of cities Tyre and Sodom, Sidon and Sodom were. They were despicable sinners who populated those cities, filled with pagan people who uh, did all manner of perversities. But they never had these signs. And Jesus said that if these signs were performed in these cities, the people there would have repented right away. These were cities were devoted to the worship of Baal, and their pride was in their power and their wealth. Sodom was immoral and a synonym for a city of sin. These cities would have witnessed, if they had witnessed Jesus' work, they would have repented and responded in belief. Whereas Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum witnessed many miracles, yet in their pride they did not repent, nor put their faith in Jesus. Rather, they were indifferent to Jesus, so Jesus condemned them with judgment. The message of Jesus demands a response. The right response is acknowledging our sin and repenting from our, our, our wicked ways and surrendering to God. Our response to Jesus has eternal consequences. If we respond in belief, we enter into his kingdom and will live with him forevermore. If we respond in unbelief, we will get what we deserve forever in a state of loss, in a state of absence from God. Jesus did most of his miracles in these cities, and Capernaum was the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. Severe punishment is reserved for those to whom much was revealed, yet chose to reject and rebel against it. Many of us were raised in Christian families today. We have access to the Word of God. We have communities where the Word of God is taught and lived out, and it's easy to live out the lives of faith in the world that, in the country that we have. Technology is making it possible to access various resources Ministries are able to uh, upload and we are able to download so many uh, interesting videos and resources. Yet if we become critical and indifferent to Jesus and refuse to believe or live into the reality of God's truth, we will suffer the consequences. Here is our first principle then. The first principle, the right response to Jesus' message is repentance and belief. Repentance and belief. The right response to Jesus' message is repentance and belief. Every day we go through different circumstances which cause us to question and make us too critical or indifferent to Jesus. Our circumstances may change, our emotions may rise and fall, but God is the one who remains faithful. He does not change like us, rather He builds our faith with kindness and patience. Let's learn to repent from our critical attitude and indifference. If we are struggling, if you are struggling, to accept the message of Jesus, I urge you to bring your questions and doubts to Him. Ask Him to help you overcome your disbelief and to grow your minuscule faith. Or what wrong thinking or critical attitude or sin or sinful habit are you harboring that make you increasingly doubtful and distract you from the truth of Jesus? Again, the right response to the message of Jesus is total commitment and devotion. Jesus' message is about repentance and belief into his reality, not the reality that you are building up around your sins. Let's move on to the second division. Divine invitation in verses 25 to 27, we learn that the humble believe in Jesus. The humble people believe in Jesus. God hates the proud and the arrogant, but he blesses the humble, the meek, and the pure in heart. When, approaches, when we approach God with a proud heart, the wisdom of God 
is kept from us, we must approach with a humble and contrite spirit. Jesus, the divine Son of God in his incarnation, was pleased to reveal the Father to the humble and promises to give the humble rest. The meek inherit the kingdom of God. In verses 28 and 29, we are invited to accept the promised rest. 28 says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When Adam and Eve sinned, humanity was subjected to sin and become increasingly familiar with evil and darkness. Our sins infected our perception of ourselves and of God. Religious exertion became a burden in which people earned their way into getting what they wanted. Passage to their own private utopia, their own private heaven. But Jesus came to give us the truth as the only one from God and no religious uh, leader no other religious leader's arrival into the world has ever been predicted like the arrival of Jesus. He has been anticipated since the beginning of time, and no other religious leader ever claimed to be God, giving evidence of his divinity through powerful miracles and teachings, which were predicted across time and space. So Jesus tells us that salvation can't be earned by us. Only he can take the punishment of our sins, and only he can grant us the new life that he gives from himself. He took the yoke of satisfying the wrath of God against all sins upon himself. Only when we believe in Jesus do we find true rest for our souls. No one else can give us such rest but only Jesus. No one has ever said that they could. So here is our second principle. Jesus alone, Jesus alone offers eternal rest for our restless souls. So what is your response to the divine invitation of Jesus? Only our pride, critical attitude, and indifference to Jesus keeps us from accepting his invitation. If we reject Jesus' invitation, we will continue to work hard to find rest through our own means and our own ways, in the world's ways, such as relationships, with jobs, with prosperity and wealth, with pleasures and adventures and bucket lists and achievements. We'll run after all the wrong things, only at the end to find that we haven't come any closer to finding rest. Only Jesus gives us true fulfillment and peace. St. Augustine of Hippo said in his confessions in his book, Lord, you have made us for yourself. And because you have made us for yourself, our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Jesus is the one who created all of us. He alone can promise and give us the rest we need. Unless we believe and accept his rest, we will never find rest in this world or the world to come. Again, Jesus alone offers eternal rest for our restless souls. Someone says, you know, we are not created as physical beings with the spiritual aspect. We are actually created spiritual beings with the physical aspect. The spiritual side is a greater part of who we are in essence and in reality than the physical. That's why we cannot ignore the spiritual. Let's move on to the third section about the, the reactions. The third reaction was the dismissive responses. The dismissive responses or refusals. It seems that everywhere Jesus moved among the people, the Pharisees were not very far behind. They watched closely to what he was doing and they were ready to pounce and to criticize. They witnessed Jesus' mercy, the miracles and the display of power of the Spirit. Yet, after having seen all of this, they were ready to deny it all. Jesus said he was greater than the temple as he was to fulfill all the ordinances required at the temple with the sacrifices. 
in order to maintain for us the relationship to God. He was even greater than the Sabbath, and he was the Lord of our eternal peace and rest. So at the heart of the sacrificial system was the mercy of God that was embodied in Jesus and embodied in his willingness to forgive us through the atonement that he is able to provide through the cross. The Pharisees were missing the spirit of the law. They missed out on the mercy. Rather, they were holding on to their own works ordinances and they were supremely legalistic. In verses 9 to 14, because of the legalism that they held up to their eyes as a glasses to seeing everything in the scripture, we see the second confrontation where Jesus is accused of healing a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath. Once again, Jesus exposes their erroneous view of God's heart. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Sabbath was given to, so that we can come to the presence of God to worship Him, to have an intimate relationship with Him, to come after a busy six day of a week working and exploring God's world, to have a debriefing time with God, to worship God and thank Him, and revel in the goodness of His presence. The Sabbath was our date night with God, set aside from everything else so that we could refresh and refill in His fellowship and make sense of everything. He who is our life, by whom we make sense of everything else, that is the Sabbath, that is our peace. Jesus gave them the opportunity to worship God on the Sabbath by performing this miracle. Because if they understood the healing of this man with a shriveled hand, they would be worshiping God for his mercy. Instead, they plotted to get rid of the Lord of the Sabbath. At the core of their unbelief was their misconception that they can win God's mercy through their works. At the core of this, honestly, it's easy for us to work and earn our righteousness because it gives us a free pass to having to develop any kind of relationship with God. The sinful nature refuses a relationship with God. When we earn things, we are in control. That makes us happy. It gives us satisfaction and strengthens our sense of pride, this human pride. Whereas when we receive from God, we are at the mercy of God. So receiving mercy humiliates the self-sufficient mind this need to be self-sufficient and independent. Religiosity is just another disguise for using good works to gain our own salvation through being a good and decent person. We flatter ourselves into thinking that that's good enough before the eternal righteousness of God. So we focus on self-reliance rather than looking for a savior. The truth about the gospel celebrates the work of Christ his mercy, forgiveness, and compassion for us. The truth of the gospel sets us free from the yoke of religious works and even atheistic works. This idea that we can work our own righteousness to merit something. Religious leaders in their pride and self-righteousness rejects the truth about Jesus. Verse 20 to 37, we see Jesus with a powerful display of the spirit as he heals a demon-possessed man. This also was dismissed by the religious leaders as an act of Satan rather than an act of God. For our modern ears, words like spirit and demon seem to be uh, unfamiliar, kind of uh, un incorrect to be talking about among civilized people. But the scriptures teach us about the reality of the spiritual world. Jesus' ministry involved casting out demons. Here the Pharisees accused Jesus of healing a demon-possessed man with the power of Satan. Again, Jesus confronts their wicked thinking. Jesus' power is from God. 
Jesus defeated the power of Satan on the cross, and so Satan and his demons are defeated enemies. Verse 31 says Jesus once again calls us to believe in him by highlighting his, his mercy. One can commit any sin and even speak against Jesus and yet be forgiven, yet in fact, uh, you know, we see that kind of uh, action on the cross, right, with many naysayers. But even with this going on, even with the mocking of Jesus, ridiculing Jesus and crucifying Jesus, Jesus asked God, the Father, to forgive them who do such things. But the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins and reveals the forgiveness that is available through Jesus. Instead of believing, if we continue to resist the Spirit, there is no forgiveness. That itself is blasphemy against the Spirit. So unbelievers can be persistent in their denial of the Holy Spirit who is trying to lead them to saving truth. The continued dismissal of truth reveals the condition of the Pharisees' hearts, reinforced in their error by their collective blindness, in their status, in their rulership. They were in an echo chamber where they were only willing to listen to themselves never at any time cross-checking their attitudes or their thoughts or beliefs against the scriptures. They weren't looking to see if they were correct at all about their beliefs. They never sought out the Bible. If anyone allows the Spirit of God to minister in their hearts, they need to be seeking the Bible. They need to check and cross-check with scripture because what they'll find there is fruit of belief. If one resists the conviction of the Holy Spirit, they bear the fruit of unbelief and are condemned for eternity. Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We can either say Jesus is Lord or we can say I am Lord. Our eternal destiny depends on what we choose to say. Verses 38 to 45, Jesus gives a sign of the resurrection even though the Pharisees dismissed the evidence he had already given. The religious leaders dismissed Jesus' mercy a miracle and a powerful display of the Spirit's work and now ask Jesus yet for another miracle or sign. How audacious! They've been seeing all of this and now they want another sign. There is actually no end to the demands for people who want to see signs. Whatever Jesus did so far was not enough for them and it won't be for people who demand such things. But God graciously uh, yielded to giving them one last sign and Jesus says none other will be shown to them except the sign of Jonah. Through this sign, Jesus is going to point to them the mercy and the power exhibited on the cross and through the resurrection. Jesus would be killed and interned in the tomb for three days, like Jonah was interned in the belly of the fish, and Jesus too will come back from the dead. And here is the truth about Jesus. Jesus died and rose again in victory, for the victory of all who are part of his kingdom. He is who he says he is, the Son of God who came down to pay a ransom for the sins of many, to fulfill God's justice. As much as we, we grieve over the social injustices going on in the world today, that should make us really grieve over the spiritual injustice and the overall injustice going on in the universe that God cares about. But that injustice needs to be paid for, and Jesus pays it all. All to him I owe. Resurrection is the ultimate proof that he alone can forgive the sins of humanity. Today he invites all of us to examine the truth he revealed and respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction with firm belief, even if it's a small belief, to say, I, I stand with you, God, for what you've done for me. 
I accept your gift. We cannot simply ignore the proof of resurrection and walk away in unbelief. So that leads us to our third principle. Third principle is that Jesus' resurrection offers the ultimate evidence for faith. Look back at the first chapters of Luke, for instance. You know, many people are saying the Gospels are fables and myths, but here was a doctor. Luke was a doctor who wrote with special care, saying he checked and cross-checked eyewitnesses and many who are still alive, many hundreds who lived and, and lived alongside Jesus, many of his disciples who were still living. And in fact, he had interviewed in person and he names specific places and locations and references key historical figures in history like Caesar Augustus, Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, Quirinius, governor of Syria, during whose time in office a major census took place. There was Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, Philip Tetrarch of Ituria, and Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene. There was Annas and Caiaphas who were the high priests at the time. These are not details of a fable or myth. Myths are not written this way. These gospels have no resemblance to once upon time stories. These gospels are telling us of a fact of God's visitation on earth in Jesus who died for our sins and who conquered death to lead us into a new kingdom, a new era, a new unfolding of his creation. What is stopping you from believing in Jesus today? Are you dismissing him for lack of evidence? Look at the cross of Jesus and ask why he was willing to forgive those who were putting him to the most agonizing death ever invented. Then look at the evidence of the resurrection and how it transformed millions of people's lives. And it started with those who were fearful, those who were running away, weak disciples. They all ran away. And then they suddenly turned and became bold proclaimers of the Gospels themselves. Into the hundreds, all that experienced his discipleship went into all the world and became the church that we see in the world today. The kingdom of God unfolding. Jesus reveals to us that the will of the Father is that we do not dismiss Jesus, but believe in him. Everyone who believes will be in the family of God forever. Jesus, our, our eternal Savior, endured the agony of the cross in order to bring us home to our Father. I hope and pray that the truth about Jesus leads you to the eternal truth and destiny. The destiny, the only thing that matters in your life right now. Not those things, and not, not your assets, not your portfolio, and what your bucket list might be. The destiny for why you've been created. He has planned for those who believe on his name and he's inviting you to join him. Jesus is the gentle Messiah who is not going to take your hand or your heart by force. He will gently come and reveal himself and expose his heart to you so that you would expose your heart to him. So in the truth that he gives, he reveals definitely what the response should be. I hope that you will give the response of yieldedness and of belief. What is your response today?